So, did you know that as we look at Isaiah chapter 6, um, I don't know if any of you are interested in mountain climbing or you have um, ever watched movies dealing with Everest, but I, I've read over the years a number of books with climbers that have climbed Everest. And one of the things they say with climbing Mount Everest is that when those climbers, especially that they've been confronted with Mount Everest for the first time, largest mountain in the world, 8.8 kilometers high, uh, so high that there are um, uh, jet winds that circle the earth, there are jet winds that circle jet streams that go at the speed of around 120 kilometers an hour. And um, it's so cold that in winter it gets down to minus 38 at the summit. And in summer it's minus 15 on average. And climbers that climb Mount Everest have always have walked away saying that it makes them feel very, very small. That it makes them feel small seeing this giant mountain. And you know, we this morning serve the God that spoke Everest into existence. We serve the God that has created those things. And actually in the light of him, you know, unfortunately we live in a world where although in the, in the presence of God, we should in some ways learn how to feel small. The world has taught us that we should be important and large in our own sight. And what I wanna do this morning is I want to give us a view of the Lord from Isaiah 6. In a sense, to put into perspective the God that we serve and the God that we worship and who he is and what he is like and how obviously this is the God that we put our faith in, our hope in, our trust in. What makes us Christians uniquely is the fact that we follow Jesus, the image of the invisible God, that we worship him and we serve him. But I find that our modern world, the, the malaise or the, the disease, even in the church among us as Christians, is we have too big a view of ourselves and too little view of God. We make ourselves important and we make God small. But actually, if we see a right view of God like Everest, we'll realize that actually we're small in our own eyes, and so we should be. And um, I want to look at this portion as we look at this, the greatness of God. And I, I really want to trust this morning that, we would, that the Lord would give us a revelation by the Spirit, not through my words, but by the Spirit, of who God is. And again, that we would put our trust in this great God that we serve. Um, and as you look at Isaiah 6, Isaiah, it's a story about this young prophet, this young man, who really has been called by God. And part of even this morning, it's dealing and unpacking with a little bit of what the call of God looks like for our lives. You know, some of you might be very new in the Christian faith. Others of you might be even here and you actually not even, you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian. Maybe you're here and you're just like seeking, you're looking. Others of you are here and you've been here for a long time. But for all of us, God has called us. There's a call on our lives. He draws us. He pursues us. He woos us. And actually, the story of Isaiah, as we'll see, is what does it mean to embrace the call of God? We'll look at that a bit later and kind of the implication of that. But um, in Isaiah 6, this young man, Isaiah, he's a prophet. He's a young prophet. He, in other words, what is a prophet? He's a spokesman for God. He speaks the words of God into his generation, into his community. And he's, he's coming into an environment that is very difficult, actually. He was living in a time in Israel where the king at that time, and let's read Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. And uh, it says this, In the years that King Uzziah died, 
I saw the Lord. So I'm going to stop there. And he was in a time where the king of Israel, the king of Judah actually, he was in the southern king, kingdom of Judah, and Israel at that time was divided into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom, and then you had the northern kingdom, which were the, I think there were 10 tribes in the north that had rebelled from uh, Judah's rule in the south. And, um, and so this man, Isaiah, that is a prophet in Jerusalem, in the south of, of Israel, he has a vision of God. He sees the Lord. He, he has a revelation of what God is like. But he's doing it in a time where the king at that time, and he had been the king of Judah for 50 years. Very stable man. On the whole, a man that was God-fearing. He, he, he did the right thing for most of the time. But the last few years of his reign, he became rebellious. He hardened his heart, and he actually became proud, so much so that God struck him down with leprosy. And he lived out the last few years as the king, in a sense, in a, in a place of disgrace, because he, he had lifted, he puffed himself up before the Lord and was under God's judgment. And that time, in the year that he died, the nation of, I think it was Assyria, rose up, and there were these world forces happening around the little nation of Israel, where world powers were beginning to kind of encroach upon the land of Judah and on the land of Israel. And the world was shaking. Um, if you were a Jew living in that time, like your king has just died, and you can imagine like the insecurity that you're facing. I know for us living in South Africa, like South Africa is shaking, you know, and we're like, oh, what do we do, you know? And in that place, he has a vision of God. And I want to say that for us as well, that how much more today that in our society, where it's ruled by the Prince of Darkness, I'm talking about ESCOM. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> Our society is shaking, you know, what, what is often stable is like, what's going on? And we need a vision of God. We need to see the Lord. And Isaiah, I love this, it says, Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And what I want to do this morning is I want to under, uh, unpack three aspects of the greatness of God and one aspect, uh, well, actually four aspects of the attributes of God this morning. So it's really just a, a preach about who God is. And, um, and that's what I want to do. So I'm going to unpack four things uh, specifically around that this morning, on the greatness and the mercy of God. And so I want us to look at Isaiah 6, verse 1 to 8. And as we do, um, we will see a few things coming out of that. The first thing we see is you see that when Isaiah has a vision of God, he, he sees the Lord seated on the throne. By the way, Isaiah most likely was in the temple worshiping. And he's in the place of the temple in Jerusalem, and he has this revelation of God. And the first thing about the greatness of God that I want to mention is we see that we see his lordship, his lordship. And interesting, like where does he see the Lord? He says, I saw the Lord seated, not in, in the grasslands or among the lilies or among the daisies or, you know, among his sheep as a shepherd. Where did he see the Lord? He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. In other words, this God that he saw was in charge, was the Lord, was the supreme ruler, was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And don't we today, we need to see and have, a, have faith in the God on the throne, because that's where he is. And sometimes around us, you know, if we, we wonder, God, are you on the throne? Are you really in charge? 
But if we are basing our faith not on experience, but upon God's word, and we base our faith on this, then we have to believe what the scriptures say, that God is in charge, and he even allows the devil, he puts him on a chain, and essentially the devil is God's servant on a chain to do even the will of God. If you read scripture, you see this is the God we serve. A God that if you serve the Lord and love him, he says he promises that even things that are evil will work out for your good. Why? Because he's in charge. And you know, with Esther and with the country particularly, in, in uh, December, the December holidays, I was really struggling with the, the, the state of the country. I have a Seychelles passport, and so I'm, uh, by, I was born in the Seychelles, uh, Seychelles nationality, 80s from Zim, she has a, a Zim nationality. And we were wondering, like, for the sake of our children, like, Lord, do you want to send us maybe to another country, another nation, you know? Maybe back to the Seychelles where I can plant a church. Like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> but I realized, like, all it is is I'm spiritualizing my unbelief. I'm spiritualizing my fear. Where actually there's been a lot of fear even around the state of our country. And during that time, I actually, I, I, I was reading Isaiah, and I came upon Isaiah 6. And as I did, I felt the Lord say, but Mike, you, you're not seeing that I'm in charge. And I had to actually bring my fear before the Lord and say, Lord, Please, I'm sorry. Uh, give me a, a vision of, of who you are, that you're in charge. And I want to say to you that if you've struggled maybe with even the state of the country or, or struggled of what does it mean to live out our faith, you know, within a corrupt and broken society. I want to say to you, if you're in the will of God, it is the safest place to be. If you're in the place where God is on the throne and you know that where you should be and God has told you, you make sure you stay there. It might be the most dangerous place on earth, but it's the safest place if you're in the will of God. Because he's Lord and he's on the throne. And so let's not be those that run away to greener pastures. By the way, the grass isn't greener on the other side. I know some of you know that, that have been, come back. You know, every, everywhere has its challenges. But make sure that you're in the will of God. Make sure we're going, not because of money, or out of comfort, or out of fear, but that we're leaving because the Lord has said, and we've been sent, as he's asked us to go. So we see his lordship. We see that Isaiah sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Isn't that a comforting thing for us today, that we serve this God that is in charge? Second thing we see about God is we see Yahweh, the Lord, we see his holiness, not only his lordship, but we see his holiness. And look what it says here in verse 2. It describes this incredible scene that I think if we had seen this, like Isaiah, the response to him later is just like an overwhelming sense of just what is going on here. And around the throne, as God is high and lifted up, there are these creatures around the throne. And verse 2 says, above him, above the Lord, the seraphim, uh, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And a few things I just want to unpack uh, um, uh, out of here about the holiness of God. The first thing is about these, these creatures, the seraphim. I mean, what kind of creatures are there? And the word seraphim literally means burning ones. 
burning ones. And they're these incredible creatures. They're the only time in scripture that these kind of creatures are mentioned. You have other creatures called the seraphim that worship around the throne of God. These fantastical creatures with, don't, you know, um, we won't get into that. But the point with the seraphim is that these six wings, two covering their eyes, two covering their feet, uh, are then flying around the throne, burning. Now the question is, why are they burning? Imagine the sight, like literally around the throne of God. They're not the angels, angelic beings to minister to God, but they are on fire. Why? And maybe it's because God himself is an all-consuming fire. And so those closest to him who, who worship him day and night were on fire. I don't know. I'm not sure. But they're these beings of such power and such beauty. And they are burning. Why are they burning? Someone once suggested because of the proximity to the holiness and the love of God, they cannot help but burn. They just burn day and night. Burn 24-7. For the glory of God. And so you've got these creatures, and then they, and amazingly it says that they've got these six wings. Why six wings? I don't know. <laughs> but it says with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet. Why are they covering their eyes, or their face, and their feet? Well, possibly because they are so in awe of the holiness of God, that even these beings that are burning and pure cannot look upon the glory of God. Even they are saying, Lord, holy, holy, holy is God. I know someone once said, uh, one of the church fathers said, it could be as well that they're covering their feet and they're covering their eyes because they don't want to be seen. It's because they want it to be about God. They want it to be about His glory, His splendor, His wonder. And that when people see Him, they want to see Him and not them. Either way, you've got these creatures, and they're singing this refrain. What are they singing? The three refrain, holy, holy, holy. Why do they sing that? Why do they sing holy, holy, holy? In fact, actually the phrase, the holy one of Israel, in the book of Isaiah is mentioned 25 times in the book of Isaiah alone. The term holy is the Lord, the holy one of Israel. And this idea actually of God by nature, and I think it's something that we forget, you know, because we're in a culture where kind of we get, we get taught, and that's not wrong, that God is our friend. I know even some of the songs we sing, we tend to sing, even the diet of our worship songs is very much Jesus is my, my lover. And there's, there's truth in that. There's, God is our lover. But unfortunately, we dumb down actually the, the purity and the holiness that God is other than us. He's set apart. He's different to us. He's not like us in any way. He's full of light, and in him there is no darkness. In fact, the term holy, 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 it actually could be refer referring, this is actually what the church fathers believed, as a reference to the Trinity. They're, they're singing Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the three in one. And you know, the amazing thing about the mystery of our faith is obviously we do, we, we worship God who is one substance, but three persons, one being, but he is three persons. Someone once said, if you try and understand the Trinity, you lose your mind. But if you deny the Trinity, you lose your faith. Because we need to understand that God had to send his son 
you were as God, a very God, and you became a man to die for our sins, the perfect man, but yet only God could pay for our sins. Like, it's just this incredible picture. And when we look at this, it's like, this is, this, this, I cannot understand this. I cannot understand how God works. Good. It means you're making yourself low in your own eyes. And you know, I remember as a young Christian, I was so, I remember being so arrogant to my faith. I thought like I had a little bit of knowledge and I thought, okay, I know a lot now. And I remember my grandfather, he wasn't, he came out of a very conservative traditional church. And my grandfather um, had a lot of questions and he would say like, I don't understand God. I don't understand the ways of God. He wasn't actually born again. He wasn't saved. He, he would just come every night. He wasn't, he hadn't given his, his life, put his faith in Christ. But I, would, I said to him, um, I called him uh, Pardick. It was like a French thing. Pardick, um, you just ask any question. I'll tell you, I can give you any answer. <laughs> I was convinced. I knew, I knew the mysteries of God. I'd been saved about a year at that point, man. I was mature. <laughs> but it's weird, you know. It's like the longer I've been serving the Lord. I mean, I think we've been serving the Lord 30, how long has it been now? 30, about 32 years I've been serving the Lord. And the longer I've been serving God, it's like the more I'm aware that actually how little I know. And I actually, the more I get to know him, it's like the more I realize how ignorant I am in light and view of the greatness of God. It's like, Lord, I have no idea what you like. And sometimes the greatest form of wisdom, if you want to grow in wisdom, that's why you've got books like Ecclesiastes and Job, because sometimes the best way to worship God, that when you're in the midst of suffering or hardship or loss, is simply, simply sometimes to say, I don't know. I actually don't know the answer, but I know him that has the answer. And you know, God doesn't always promise to give us the answer. In fact, he never says he'll give us the answer. But what God does is he always promises to give us his grace and his power in the midst of it and through it. And so we see this picture of the holiness, the perfection and the beauty of the Lord. He's holy. Let's look at the next thing about what Isaiah sees. Isaiah not only sees his lordship, sees his holiness, but sees his glory. And I love what the seraphim sing. You know, they sing about the holiness of God is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven. But then he says that the whole earth is full of his glory. And they would use that phrase, the glory of God. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isn't that beautiful? full of his glory now when we think about the glory of God and again I'm, I'm getting probably into you know, a bit of theology but in fact by the way we're all theologians because we all have a view about God just whether you're a good one or a bad one or, or we all incomplete ones right <laughs> and what is the glory of God the glory of God essentially is how God reveals himself it's the attributes of God shown to the world what he is like and he's saying, God, one day that the whole earth is going to see what you really like. The whole earth will be filled with your attributes, with your glory, with the weight of your splendor and your light and your love and your power. The whole earth is going to experience it, just like we've experienced a taste of it right now. The whole earth will be filled with it. And you know, the thing about the glory of God is something that it's also taken me time to realize, is that the glory of God doesn't just speak about the love of God and the splendor of God, but it actually speaks about God as a judge. And it's interesting that when it says that he will return full of glory, to, when, the, when the earth is covered with the glory of God, there's interesting scripture, there's actually loads of them in the Bible, but I'll just read one, just to mess with our minds a little bit. 
in Revelation 1 verse 7. And by the way, this morning, I really trust that they say part of, part of preaching is to disturb the equilibrium, is to disturb you. Someone once said that um, truth comes to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. And I hope this morning that if you're comfortable, you're going to be disturbed. That you're going to leave disturbed. If you are disturbed, I pray that you'll be comforted and encouraged in your faith. <laughs> so that's the ways of God, right? Because we are. We're a comfortable generation. And we need to kind of... And, and these scriptures, what they do, I know for me, because I lean into comfort. I often get comfortable. And when I read scripture and I'm confronted with, 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 with God, what God is like, I get disturbed. It's like, it doesn't fit my box of what of what my understanding of God is. I thought you were kind and soft and gentle. And yes, he is those things. But Lord, this messes with my, my understanding. I, I can't be in charge of my own life, therefore. I can't set my own agenda and have my own plans. I have to order my life around what is important to him. Because if he is the sustaining source of all things, my life is centered on his glory. But anyway, it carries on. And he, when he comes back again, look at Revelation 1 verse 7 says, what says, on that day, and this is the day of glory, the day of the glory of the Lord. For many, it says, it will be a day of terror. Of terror, what? Of terror. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. In other words, those that have lived their lives, basically living according to their own agenda, really putting themselves on the throne of their hearts, on the throne of their lives, making decisions of what, what, what we believe is best instead of him. It says that day will come, and for those that have, that have pierced him, for those that have, and we all have, but for those that have rebelled against him, that day will be a day of mourning and terror. I know Isaiah says that the day of the Lord will for some will be a day where people will be running, it says, into caves, wailing, like, let the rocks fall on us because we cannot contain the glory and the holiness of God. That's just the nature of our God. He's so pure and perfect and powerful that we are faced with a dilemma. And so what happens with Isaiah, you know, Isaiah sees this picture and what is his response? He sees... God is seated on the throne. God in his holiness. He sees Yahweh in his glory. What does he do? What is his response? And it tells us in verse 6, you know what he doesn't say? He goes, yo, Lord, daddy, it's so good to see you. You know? Oh, father, wonderful. It's so good to see you. It's like, hey, let's be buddies. Let's be friends. What does he do in that light? You know, he doesn't go, he goes this. He says this in verse Five, he says, and I said, as I says, woe is me, for I am lost and I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe, by the way, in our modern culture, woe doesn't go, whoa. It's not like, whoa, man. Okay, not, not that kind of woe. Some of you are thinking. The word woe, woe basically means, the, the King James Version actually says, woe is me, I am undone. I am lost. He basically, woe means calamity and trouble is coming. That's what he's saying. That's what woe means. It means it speaks of sorrow, distress, and despair at his sinful condition. It's basically saying this, to translate this into modern language, I am in deep trouble. That's what Isaiah said. He saw who God was and he saw his own brokenness 
his own sinfulness, his own incompleteness. He saw the perfection of God, and his response is, I'm in deep trouble. I'm up the creek without a paddle. I am, I'm, in, I'm deep. <laughs> Into, I was gonna say. <laughs> and it's interesting, he doesn't, he doesn't just say, you know, woe is the generation that I'm in. Lord, thank you that I'm such a holy man. Oh, because I'm a prophet, you know, I'm in full-time ministry. Oh, yes, you know, I'm holy, but those people that I'm part of, they're a corrupt generation. They're lost and in despair. No, 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 no. You know what he does? He goes, woe is me. In other words, there's a sense of his own failure, of his own brokenness, of his own place of like, Lord, I, he takes ownership of his own sin and he takes ownership of his own life. And then off the back of that, he realizes that he's part of the systemic place of like that the whole, the whole nation that he's with, even though that they were religious, very religious, that they were corrupted from the heart because they were serving self and they were using the name of God to actually make themselves feel good. They were using religion. They were using the Bible to actually endorse their sinful lifestyle. And he goes, oh, I'm part of a corrupt generation in light of who God is. He doesn't try and blame his parents. He doesn't go, whoa, whoa, my parents. Oh, why? What did my parents do? You know, it's not my fault. I'm a victim. You know? No, he, it's like he, he understands that. And isn't that a beautiful thing? That when we are, are confronted with who God is, we take ownership of our lives. We don't blame others. We don't, we, don't victim, we don't victimize ourselves. We're not, no, 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 no. I say, I'm taking ownership of my life. I'm not going to um, have excuses for my sin anymore. I'm not going to have excuses for my behavior. God has called me to an account in light of, of who he is. It's a beautiful thing. And so what happens from here on in is, now in some ways, what does Isaiah do? What does Isaiah do in light, in light of this? Well, nothing. He's, he's in trouble. He can do nothing. There's nothing that he can do to take initiative to get close to God. He's actually he's in deep doo-doo. <laughs> he can't. How can a sinful man have fellowship with a holy God? He can't. He's actually in trouble. And so the beautiful part of this, and this leads us to the fourth thing, we see the mercy of God. We see the mercy of God. And so what happens is the Lord himself comes down and it says, look, let's look at verse six of what happens. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. It's interesting, so it says that one of these burning ones comes with a coal from the altar, and it comes, and it's a strange picture. Have you ever wondered, like, what the heck is going on here? This is a weird picture, right? Coming from a, a coal from the altar where it's hot, well, I'll explain that now, and literally comes with tongs. You know, we use bright tongs all the time, one of those tongs, and he comes and he literally puts a hot coal on his mouth. Like, what is going on? Now, I want to explain here, but the thing is, we see that actually God takes the initiative to reach out to Isaiah. Isaiah is not able to reach him, but God reaches down. And you know, I want to say that that, my friends, is the core of our faith. It's not that we reach up to God, 
but it's that God reaches down to us. Someone once said the difference between Christianity and religion, religion is man reaching up to God to try and find him. Christianity is God reaching down to man, reaching down to, man to, to save him. It is God that came through Jesus on a search and rescue mission to say that you are dead in your sins, you're an enemy of mine, you've hated me, you were a rebel from birth, and I've had to come down and reach you because I'm a God of love. And even though he's a God of holiness and, and glory, even though he should strike us down because he's so different from us, somehow in the love of God, he reaches out to us and says, come. And you know, he does that still today, all the time, through Jesus, through the Spirit, wooing us, calling us to himself. And look what he does. It says, he says this, he says, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So why, now the question you might ask, because this is what I've asked, why does he take a hot coal from the altar? What does that mean? That's a good question. You guys are sharp. Okay. What does that mean? Well, I want us just to quickly look, step back and look at, understand, remember that he's a Jew, worshiping in a Jewish context. And so obviously if you understand the way that uh, the Jews worship God, we know that they worship God at the temple. And we know that in the temple, from when God instituted the, the, the desert tabernacle with Moses, later on they built it in the time of Solomon, later on again in the time of Jesus. But the one defining thing in the temple that when a sinner, like if you came to worship God, you and I, if we wanted to come to the temple to worship, what you would need to do is you would walk through the, the doors of the temple and you'd come into a very large courtyard. And in the courtyard, at the center of the courtyard would be this defining um, bronze altar. Basically the altar was like a giant bry. It's the best way I can describe it. It was, a, it was like a giant brai. And basically the worshiper, he would come in because when the Jew would come to worship, he would come knowing that he could only worship God if there's been an atoning of his sins, a, a forgiving of his sins so that he could have access to the Holy God. And what he would do is the average worshiper would come in with some kind of sacrifice to put onto the altar. And so they would come with like a little uh, a dove. Some of the poor uh, Jews, they couldn't afford goats or lambs or animals. And God in his mercy, isn't this beautiful? He actually said that if you too are poor to afford an animal, you can bring a little dove. Shame, you might be thinking, poor dove. <laughs> or if you couldn't even afford that, you could bring grain and you could throw that upon the altar. And what would happen is the worshiper would come and now the job of the priests, they were priests that served around the altar, the bri, and their job was to basically keep the bri going all the time. They'd keep it going at a certain time, I don't think it 24-7, but they'd keep the altar going where they would stoke the bri with wood and there would be these coals underneath the altar that would come up, right? Everyone got the picture? How many of you love bri -ing? Are you a briars? Okay, you're a stupid question. South African culture. <laughs> I, unfortunately, I'm not a big briar. Forgive me. But anyway, and these guys are, that's their job, is to tend the bri, so to speak. And, and, the, and the, the sinner would come in, the worship would come in with their animal. And what would happen is they would bring their animal to the priest at the altar. 
and there would be this symbolic gesture or action that would take place where the sinner, the priest would take his hands along with the hands of the sinner and they would lay their hands, the, the, the priest would help the sinner and the sinner would lay his hands, both of them, upon the animal. And in fact, if, if it was, um, you know, whatever the animal was, they would actually lean their weight upon the little animal. And that leaning of the weight, the laying on of hands, would symbolize that there was a transference of sin from the guilty worshiper to the innocent animal. And they would take that animal, this innocent little animal that's done nothing wrong, and then they would sacrifice it, put it upon the altar, and that offering would be go up to the Lord as a burnt offering, pleasing to Him. Our friends, what does this speak about? I want to say that this picture is a foreshadowing of the work of Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, who came that your and I sins were laid upon Jesus, the sins of the whole world, every single person, your guilt and your shame and everything you've done was laid upon Him. And it's a picture of the atoning work of Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the gospel? And that what makes us those that are, are able to come into the presence of God is because we understand grace. Is that we understand that we cannot come into the presence of God but by the obedience and the sacrifice of that atoning lamb, Jesus Christ. And I know this is such a simple picture of the gospel, but I think it's one that we have to remind ourselves again and again and preach the gospel to ourselves. Mike, I do it to myself. Mike, I'm coming in because of what Jesus has done. I can't congratulate myself because I'm so wise and clever and, and you know, good. No, 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 no. Every, and I've got to remind myself of the gospel. I'm coming in and, Lord, I've laid my sins upon you and I've received grace and forgiveness and mercy because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And so he needed atonement. And it's lo I love this. You know, Isaiah could never come to God on the basis of his good works. He needed some kind of sacrifice. And you and I, we come to the, on the basis of his good works, of his sacrifice. And that is our boast, that is our confidence, and we need Jesus. And so I wanna to say to you in closing that if you believe that you're called by God, and if you believe God has, a, has, a, has, has wooed you and called you, and he does, he calls each of us, you can only be used by God if you understand grace. You, you can only be used by God if you understand holiness, and if you understand mercy, and that you come saying, actually, I've been given what I don't deserve. And if you think that you deserve ministry, deserve calling, deserve to be used by God, that very thing will disqualify you because we boast in our human strength. And I love in closing what Isaiah does. Uh, he has this revelation of the mercy of God that he has now access into the presence of this holy God. And look what, he's, look what the Lord says in verse 8, he says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? The Lord is wooing him. The Lord is saying, Who will I send? Who will go for me? And in that place, Isaiah responds. And by the way, it's interesting to see the two responses of Isaiah. The first time Isaiah responds or re responds to God, he's saying, Lord, ah, there's no way I'm disqualified. I, I can't be used by you. Do you know what I do you know what I'm like? Do you know what I've done? 
Do you know who I am? It's like, I can't, I can't come close to you, Lord. I'm, I'm, I've done so much. I've, I've dishonored your name. Maybe you might feel like that sometimes. I've sinned against you, God. I've, I, I've, I've done things in my life that how could God use me? But the second time Isaiah responds is the what? He says, here I am, Lord. Send me. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Because he has a revelation in a response to the very grace and mercy of God. And I want to say to you today that there are some of you here today that maybe you've been running away from the call of God for your life. And maybe you've disqualified yourself. Maybe you've said, no, uh, my time is past. Uh, maybe you felt that you had a window of opportunity that, and you, you didn't take it. Some, somehow there was something in your life and maybe you, you, for some reason, I want to say to you, today God calls again, who will go for me and whom shall I send? And there's some of you that are ordering your life around yourself. You're ordering your life around what's comfortable, what's convenient, what is your five-year plan. And actually, we need to be like Isaiah, that our lives are laid down before him and says, oh God, I'm going to live for your glory. Otherwise, we just, life is not worth living. And so, as we close, I want to say we need a vision of God. Continual painting of the picture of the bigness of God and the greatness of God and the kindness of God and the mercy of God. And so I want us to respond this morning in worship and just in um, giving ourselves to him. Can we do that? Um, as we do that, I want to read a scripture to you in Romans 11, verse 33 and 12 to 1, and then um, we're going to respond and I want to pray for us. Uh, Romans 11, verse 33. Can we turn there? No, we don't have any AV up. If you, if you don't turn there, then listen carefully to this. And it's a portion in, um, with Paul writing. And he's writing of some of the mystery of God and, and the mystery of election and God's choosing and the way he chooses the Jews and now he chooses the Gentiles and how salvation works. And it's this deep, mysterious thing that he's doing. And then he writes at the end of this whole section on the, 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 the mystery of election and salvation. And he says this. He actually begins to worship God off the back of this theology. And he worships God. And this is what he says in Romans 11.33. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? So he's just in the state of like this God. Who, how great is he? And then he carries on. He says, for, 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 for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So what does he do? He sees the greatness of God. He sees the mystery of God. He sees the, 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 the all-knowing nature of God. And what does he do? He sees in view of, in view of God's mercy, in view of that mercy, what is our response this morning?
And our response this morning is offer your bodies again to him as a living sacrifice. And you know, the irony of this mustn't be taken away because you know what a living sacrifice is? Most sacrifices, when you brought it, what, what, what was a characteristic of that sacrifice? It was dead. It died. When it was put upon the, the bride, the altar, it, it had to die. But here Paul says, no, 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 no. You're different because you're dying to live. You're living to die. You are a living sacrifice. In other words, you're climbing upon the altar in view of the, the great Lamb of God that, is, that enables us to come into the presence of God. If you want to be used by God, you get onto that altar. Not to somehow work out your salvation or try and, you know, impress God. No, in view of His mercy, I have to give my life to Him. I've got to lay it down before Him because of His worth and His beauty. And I want to ask you the question, how, worth is, how much is Jesus worth to you? How much is Jesus worth to you? Is He worth us laying everything before the altar? Say, here I am, Lord, consume me. May my life be lived as a sacrifice pleasing unto you. And so, can we pray together? Let's bow our heads and pray. Worship you, Lord. We love you, Lord. Yeah, come, Lord, this morning. Father, we want to say before you this morning, Lord, we, we know that these can just be words without a revelation, without your spirit revealing, Lord, these things can be meaningless. But Lord, this morning we want to come and we want to pray that would you open up the eyes of our heart to really get a greater glimpse of your glory this morning. Would you come this morning, Lord, and just open up our understanding to see more of your majesty and greatness. Maybe, Lord, for some here that have even got familiar, I know I do, Lord, I to repent of it, even recently, of being familiar with God. This morning, Lord, would you help us to, to again get the wonder of who you are, to recapture and reclaim the wonder of God, the glory of God, shown through Jesus. And just with, with us um, praying this morning, I want to pray that if you're here today, and if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, Maybe you've been running away from God in some way, but you know that the Lord has called you, and you know that you have to turn away from your sins and put your faith in Him. Is there anyone this morning that you want to respond, and you know that in light of the holiness of God, you are actually, like Isaiah, you're doomed? I want to say that, you know, if you don't bow your knee today, you will one day. On that day, you will bow your knee to the rightful Lord of the heavens and the earth. But because of the kindness of God, he reaches out to you on a search and rescue mission saying, I love you. I love you even in your sin. And if you respond to me today, I'm going to turn you from a rebel into a, a, a worshiper. And if you know that the Lord is knocking on your heart or drawing you, if you know that, would you respond this morning? Would you respond? Is there anyone this morning that wants to respond to him? I'm not trying to manipulate or stretch. I really want to give an opportunity because the Father does. Is there anyone? Would you raise your hand if that's you? Just raise your hand in there. Say, Mike, that's me. I want to come to Christ. Thank you, man. Anyone else this morning? Do you want to respond to the Lord?
Okay, let's pray together. I want to pray for that young lady who responded. And Father, I want to thank you this morning for this, this, this lady that has responded. Um, oh, I want to pray for her, Lord, that even if she's, she's said yes to you, that you would come right now and make her born again. Lord, maybe there's, uh, the Bible says that, that for those who have a hard heart, if you've got a hard heart, he will make your heart as soft as flesh. He's going to soften your heart by the Spirit. And where you are, just say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. I, I want to come and I want to repent and give my life to you. I commit myself to you. I believe in what you've done, that you are the Lord, and I surrender my life to you. The Bible says if you do that, he promises that he would forgive your sins, make you his child. For the rest of us, I just think it would be appropriate for us just to res respond in worship, just to give ourselves to him in view of who he is.